How's it going, everybody? It is about 4.40 on Friday, July the 12th, 2019, and it's time for a trip down the homeward path. This is the show by me. My name is Adam, and I am a husband, a father of three, and a 42-plus-an-hour-a-week factory worker, and somehow, someway, we still make semi-competitive magic work. So this is the show for all of you who are like me. No time, no money. Let's make it work anyway. Um, this past week I got, I had a couple of very pleasant surprises come up that we'll, we'll go over in the while we were away segment. And then continuing my kind of, you know, break from individual card interactions and more of a focus on more evergreen topics and uh, things we can learn from. I want to dive a little bit into the history of one of the archetypes that I have played probably the most in the last few years, but I completely avoided when I first started playing more competitive magic. And there's a few reasons for that, but we'll dive into those in a little bit. But the the, the surprises themselves were great, and the lessons we can learn from the from the archetype deep dive, if you will, are, are going to be pretty substantial. And what else is pretty substantial is our sponsor at inkgaming.com. You can check them out. Use the promo code CCMTG10 at checkout. Get 10% off your order. Decorate your gaming space. Make it look pretty substantial. And there's a pretty substantial wealth of great content over on the network at constructedcriticism.com, which is where we're hosted. And something that is never not regarded as really substantial is the donations by those of you who have decided to become patrons of the show patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg the show's always going to be free but I really appreciate those of you who have decided that you like what I'm doing enough to help me continue making it and help me make it better so all the shilling out of the way let's start things off with what happened while we were away so I had a co-worker send me a message on I believe it was either Friday night or Saturday. It was after I recorded last week's episode anyway. Um, and he said, hey, I just kind of spur of the moment, I went by Walmart, picked these up, and he had gotten a deck builder's toolkit and had no idea what any of the cards did because he'd never played Magic before in his life. Closest approximation was a little, little dabble in Yu-Gi-Oh! when he was younger. So there was there was not a whole lot of like a basis or a framework to work with. And he's like, what, what, do you, what advice do you have for me on building my first deck? I said, don't. I'm going to go grab something, and then we'll go from there. So I went up to Goose's. I walked in the door, and I said, I have a very exciting question to ask. And he says, what? I said, I, can I get two welcome decks? He said, who are you teaching? I said, somebody at work. He says, awesome. So we played on our breaks. We get two 15s and a 30 every day. And we played on all three of them, uh, sometimes with lower life totals just to make sure we can actually finish a game in the amount of time we have allotted. Uh, but we, we, we played, you know, six games of magic, his first six games of magic. And with every single game, it felt like he was grasping more and more of what was going on. And that is very exciting. What was even more exciting was after watching us, another coworker who had been kind of poo pooing on magic, if you will, uh, believing that the mana system was the entirety of everything that was wrong with the game and it needed to be, you know, faster and more free to, you know, more free rolling like Yu-Gi-Oh was. And then he watched us play Magic and he's like, can I try that next week? 
So like, I guess I'm steadily turning my place of employment into a magic testing ground, little by little. That's very exciting. And then on June the 13th, I placed a buy list order with Alpha Beta Unlimited. And I'm telling you this because I told you when I came back after Nolan was born that I was going to be very upfront and very transparent about not just what I was doing, but how, you know, how I was going about it, how much I was getting, you know, what kinds of budgets I'm working with. Because if I'm, you know, if, if I'm giving you numbers, if I'm telling you cards to pick up because they're within my budget and they're not within yours, that's not really helping you any, is it? So it's important to not just know what I'm getting, but how. Uh, so I sent a trade order into Alpha Beta Unlimited, uh, ABU Games. They had a little bit of a fire buy situation on Fetchlands, so I just took advantage because I don't play a lot of modern. And when I do, uh, like I have Arclight Phoenix now, I don't need a gajillion Fetchlands. So I ended up moving four polluted deltas, four bloodstained Myers, four copies of Thoughtseize from Theros. The deltas and Myers were from Cons. So uh, eight Cons fetches, four Thoughtseize from Theros, four Rise of the Eldrazi, Inquisition of Kozilek, and then a uh, exquisite blood were the headliners. And then there were a few kind of lower tier, like 50 cent, 75 cent, 30 cent cards kind of thrown in to really pad it out. And I was positive because I had not heard anything up in like when I recorded last week, I was positive that order had gotten lost in the mail. And as of Monday, they had canceled the buy list order. So I just like, I figured I'd either get them back or I would just never see them again and write the whole thing off as a loss. And then Wednesday evening, they send me an email and said, Hey, we got your stuff. We processed it, but there's a couple of cards with a lower condition grade. Do, do you want to take it? Or do you want us to send those cards back and give you for everything else we're still interested in at the condition you rated? And I said, uh, at this point, I'm happy to have anything. So yeah, we'll just take what you give me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to trust the mail to get it back to me in the first place at this like at this juncture. We've not had good luck with it this this time around. So all the all the drama unfolded, the excitement of having actually gotten something when I thought it was lost, I was never going to get it. I I'm in a position now going going into the summer or in the middle of the summer. Uh, you know, corsets already out, so there's not any new. Uh, standard impacting set releases until October-ish. Whatever archery happens to be. Uh, so we got all the sets that are going to be in standard until rotation. And I've got plenty of decks to play, so I don't need anything, any big ticket items right now. Uh, I've got the blue-black Terramander shell from BTCLA that I'm still very, very much interested in. I've still got, is it Phoenix? I've still got uh, Gruel Aggro. I've still got Rakdos Aggro. I've still got Tamer Reclamation available to me. Uh, variations on like Grixis, like Medium Grixis or uh, Grixis Control. You know, lots of different lines we can take. And thanks to that trade order, I've also got a $456 head start into the standard in the fall. So... When you hear me talk about cards that I'm picking up in the fall, 
and they seem really expensive, just know it's because I've already traded stuff in to cover those costs. It's not because I'm paying it out of pocket. It's because I've made sacrifices in the short term uh, in value of cards that would normally, you know, normally be considered hold on to investments and cards that would only potentially go up in value. They're not cards that I tend to hold on to forever because I just like, I love fetch lands. I love having them. I love being able to play fully, fully powered modern decks, but I also don't play modern enough to justify hanging on to them. So that's how I'm going to be able to play what I do come fall. So I just wanted to disclose that and, you know, share my excitement at being able to essentially let magic fund itself for another year. So, all of that out of the way, let's go into this week's topic. And our main topic, our main point that I want to drive home, if you will, huh? Drive home. It was a lot funnier when I was still doing this in the car. <laughs> our main point was, is, I want to talk a little bit about my history with mid-range decks. Because it's it's a little bit weird. It's it's almost a cautionary tale about like both not listening necessarily to what other people are telling you, and you know if if you get if your testing shows different conclusions based on what you're playing against, and also it's a it's a cautionary tale about not getting too set in your ways, especially if you take a break from the game and then come back and expect it to be the same, because it's not. So when I first started playing Standard, now I started playing Magic and Champions of Kamigawa, and I'm pretty, you know, vocal and upfront and open about that fact. But I didn't really start playing Standard. I played for like two months, maybe, with Mirrodin and Standard, and then... Meriden rotated out and Ravnica City of Guilds released. And that was my first experience with Standard. So what what was what was the deal with Midrange? Well, my first few events I didn't I didn't really run into it. I played against a lot of aggro and I played against a lot of control. I played against a lot of Boros, I played against a lot of green-white, but it was like super wide green-white, super aggressive wide green-white, no fours, no fives, no nonsense, just get them dead. Uh, I played against a lot of, like, what was the, what was the deck, what was the deck? Uh, like the four-color Gifts Ungiven, it was very much a, like a tap-out control deck, like Juicy Blue was a deck at the time, there was a lot of, like, there, there were no mid-range decks at that point. There was nothing for me to draw that parallel to. Well, then we got Guild Pact in the, in the fall, or in the winter, the winter set, the February set. And with Guild Pact came the advent of a deck at Pro Tour Honolulu. It was the first Pro Tour I watched the coverage of on my mother's dial-up internet. It was the most excruciating experience of my life. But it was also what got me interested in more competitive magic play. And taught me a you know more much more valuable lessons about building decks and that kind of thing. And this deck just kept showing up on coverage, and it was this black green white deck. And it was like we, we it was playing expensive creatures and cheap removal with Phyrexian Arena, and then like Loxodon uh, uh, Loxodon Hierarch and. Uh, 
like Ghost Council of Orzova, and you were just this like tribal 4-4 value deck that was trying to outpace everybody. And that was my first exposure to mid-range. I didn't actually get to see Gazi Glare at Worlds, and Gazi Glare was more like a aggro with a good sideboard plan than it was necessarily like typical mid-range. So this 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 black green white deck this this beach house control is what they referred to it as eventually came to be derided pretty massively in the more professional scene because the reason the deck flopped at the tournament despite the fact that so many people were positive they'd broken the the standard format was that the deck just didn't know what it was it was it was trying to be both aggro and control at the same time but it ended up being the worst of both worlds and that was my first exposure to the term mid-range because at that point it was used pretty derisively by the community. You used it to describe a deck that really just needed to pick a lane and stay in it. And the deck got picked apart on the, on the circuit, both the, the PTQ circuit, the regional circuit, the, the national circuit, all of it. It just never really made much of an impact. Fast forward to Time Spiral Standard, and I was playing Scribbin Force. It was the green-blue sort of aggro mid-range. It was like a big aggro deck. You had this big 5-drop 8-8 that you won your aggro mirrors with. And I was playing this deck, but at the time I didn't regard it as mid-range. I didn't know it was supposed to be. I was playing it like an aggro deck. Eventually I ended up like cutting my remands and cutting some of the other interaction to just play more ways to clear blockers and attack, and I ended up doing better. So that kind of told me that mid-range being this, like, trying to do a little bit of both was bad. I needed to stick to my lane, be an aggro deck. Well, the, these, this kind of trend continued from, it was, you know, Scrib and Force, it was the, the various forms of the, <clears throat> the, the quintuple hybrid creatures from Shadowmore and Eventide, in the next year, and then we got Shards of Alara, and late in the season for Shards of Alara with Lorwyn, we got our first glimpse at a mid-range deck that was actually good, and it was Jund, with Bloodbraid Elf and Blightning and Boggart Ramgang. Everybody referred to the deck as aggro because you were, you were black, green, red. The format was kind of slow anyway, and we just... Like it was, it was one of the faster decks in the format. Bloodbraid into Blightning was like this just fast, aggressive burn spell thing you could do after playing a tap land on one and a putrid leech on two, and like a sprouting thrine axe or a bogger ram gang on three. You could just bloodbraid into a haste creature or bloodbraid into three damage. You know, the, the design was like bloodbraid into something that deals three. Well, then Alara rotated. Not Alara, uh, Lorwyn rotated out of standard. And John Midrange was the best deck in standard, despite the fact that that was the first that was the first time I really got to see what a midrange deck was capable of when it was designed properly. Which was to say, like you had draws where you know you you worked your tap lands in on turn one, usually it was like turn one, turn five, that you would work your tap lands into your curve. But you had stuff like Putrid Leech, you had stuff like Sprouting Thrinax, you had stuff. You know, oh, what was the other three drop? I can't remember the other three drop. It doesn't matter. Uh, 
you know, Blightning was a value play that was it was aggressive, a, a powerful aggressive value play. Bloodbraid could hit any number of cards like Blightning, like Putrid Leech, like uh, you know, Terminate, Maelstrom Pulse, Lightning Bolt, any number of cards that just you know put the tighten the screws on your opponent with an aggressive draw. But then you also had the ability to grind behind all the removal you were playing, Bloodbraid's ability to be a two for one, and then you had five and six, you know, four, five, and six drops in Garuk Wildspeaker, uh, Siege Gang Commander, and Broodmate Dragon. And that was the that was when I realized this was not an aggro deck, but it wasn't a control deck. Like my aggro deck doesn't want to play Garuk or Siege Gang or Broodmate. But my control deck doesn't want to play Putrid Leech and Blightning. So what is this? Well, it was my first exposure to a really, really well-designed, well-balanced, well, uh, for lack of a better term, mid-range deck. You had the ability to start fast against a deck that let you, and you had the ability to grind against a deck that required you to. And I was like, oh, well, what is this? Like, this is this is awesome. I want to play more of this. And then all the, the Jund cards rotated out of standard. We lost everything except Lightning Bolt. Like, in one fell swoop, we lost the whole deck. And I was left playing stuff like Pyromancer Ascension and eventually variations on, like, uh, Boros deck wins with Stoneforge and Swords and then uh, Blue-Black Control with Jace and a bunch of edict effects and removal and card draw and just shortly after that I ended up taking a break from standard and so I left standard having only experienced one good mid-range deck really every other one I'd played was kind of regarded as horrible it was regarded as you know by the community as a deck that really needed to pick a lane and stay in it and even during the Jun season there were times where the the pro community, the the article community, the content creation community wasn't very big then. It was basically just Evan Irwin. But like most of the 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 article community on Star City and TCG Player, and at that time stuff like Pojo, and there were more strategy driven articles on Wizards.com were like, is John, does John need to be more of an aggro deck? Does John need to be more of a control deck? Like, what is John trying to do? You know, what's the lane that they need to stick with instead of trying to be this deck that does a little bit of everything, but that was really good because it did so much of everything? And eventually, you know, during my break from Magic, I I, I tried to keep up, but I didn't get to watch the the Thero, the uh, Innistrad RTR. I didn't get to watch the Summer of Thrag Tusk. I didn't get to watch you know Siege Rhino dominate several tournaments in a row. And ultimately, it was just some interactions with my cousin, and then talking to Nick at work that convinced me I needed to give Magic a shot again. And when I got back in and I started getting standard cards. I started looking at the format and I saw all these like dopey kind of big, dumb creature decks that were doing well and they weren't aggro, but they weren't control. And I didn't know what was happening. And, you know, early on in my time playing magic, I probably would have been well suited to just give some of the mid range decks that I thought about playing a try, but 
ultimately dismissed because they were, you know, needed to pick a lane. They needed to be what they were. When I came back to Magic, I had that so ingrained in my head that it took me forever to latch onto that as something that I actually wanted to be doing. Even though, like, Jund was one of the best experiences I had playing Magic, period, it took me forever to, so to s slide into that as, like, a headspace of deck design. I was trying to make, you know, Nick, Nick says, I need help with this, uh, this green-red energy aggro deck. And at first, we were just trying to optimize it. We were just trying to make it faster, trying to hit harder, trying to make it bigger, you know, lower the mana curve, clean it up. But, like, burn spells were awful. We didn't have any. Like, we had incendiary flow and nothing. So, like, burn spells were bad, so we were just kind of this mopey, aggressive creature deck that was not nearly good enough against all the mid-range decks and the control decks. Ultimately, what I ended up settling him into... And he's like, well, why don't we put in some kind of a grinding component? And I said, well, doesn't that just make you this like mid-range pile that doesn't know what it wants to be? And he says, dude, mid-range is fine. Mid-range is good. And I said, what? Things really have changed since I've been away. <laughs> so then we got to doing some homework together and we started working some stuff out. And like we got it, we got him into a deck that was good. We got him into a deck that he felt comfortable with, and he proceeded to rattle off several f and m wins in a row before finally pivoting onto something else and then we we went through the four color copycat format for months on end where you know things were horrible and you were playing four color mid-range with a combo or you were playing three color mid-range with a uh a, a faster curve and the ability to disrupt the combo and then finally, I just looked at him and I was like, these guys don't know how to play mid-range, I guess. Like, let's just build a green-black rock deck. And we ended up building a, a variation on Delirium. And he proceeded to win another set of like four or five FNMs in a row with this green-black Delirium shell that we just hammered out one day out of frustration. And the more I studied, the more I did homework on mid-range, the more I liked it. To the point where even during the Teamer Marvel format, where Teamer Marvel was far and away the best deck, I was playing Teamer Energy mid. And, you know, Marvel got banned and they're like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I'm just going to keep playing this deck because it's really good. And I played it until they told me I couldn't. <laughs> and then I have bounced around off and on since then. So what are the lessons we can learn from this? Well, first... Midrange has finally settled on an identity as a deck concept. Early on, it was definitely piles of cards trying to do too much, especially early on in my time. Like, Gifts Ungiven was really kind of a, a medium midrange deck, but it played more like a tap-out control deck. That black-green-white deck was trying really hard to be a non-blue control deck, but it didn't have nearly enough card advantage. Like, Phyrexian Arena as your only way to reload on cards is not powerful enough. That's what ultimately sealed the deck's fate at the, the Pro Tour in Honolulu. The, the, the various forms of, like, Spectral Force Scrib Ranger decks during Time Spiral Standard, they weren't fast enough to compete with the control decks, and they weren't, like, other than specifically Spectral Force, they weren't good enough against aggro. It would have been better suited being just more generally aggressive decks with a bigger top end. 
and then uh, Lorwyn, we had successful mid-range decks. They just masqueraded on the deck registration sheets as aggro because we had elves, which was green-black, playing the likes of Thoughtseize, Renswin Vanquisher, uh, Chameleon Colossus, Garuk Wildspeaker, and Profane Command. And then we had Doran decks that were doing the same thing, but then we're also playing Doran the Siege Tower and, you know, a, a couple of white sideboard cards. So I didn't recognize them as what they were at the time, and I really wish I would have. Well, then when I came back, it took me a minute to realize that what I had derided for so long, what I'd been kind of taught to deride for so long, was actually really good now. And it's something that we have going on right now. Like the, the Teamer Elementals deck looks like an aggro deck at first glance, but it's not. It's a value mid-range deck. That's what it is. And as someone who played Teamer Energy until it got banned, like I love playing value Teamer mid-range. I probably would have loved Con Standard because of that. But I didn't I didn't play, so I don't know. Um But at the end of the day, what it what the biggest lesson is the mid-range does in fact have an identity where back early on when I learned about magic it really didn't now it has a clear-cut identity which is to be fast enough at generating some kind of pressure whether it's pressure on the life total if you're talking about a deck like Boros Feather or pressure on resource advantage with decks like Snakes and Ladders or, you know, Black Green Constrictor, Sultai Energy. Um, oh, what's another good one? Like the uh, Esper Hero is a mid-range deck. And the advantage that they gain is less in pressure on the board and than it is pressure on the resources that the control player is trying to fight over. So you want pressure in some form against control decks, and then you want that same kind of pressure to be effective at making sure you don't get blown out by an aggro deck on the other end. Like against aggro, 10th District Legionnaire out of Boros Feather grows really big. The same Whirler Virtuoso that makes your opponent's removal bad out of Teamer Energy also makes your opponent's non-evasive attackers bad against fast, aggressive decks. Because you just get two blockers for the price of one. You know, that was, that was the premise behind it. It's the idea that your cards have roles in multiple different matchups. So instead of being a deck that needs to pick a lane, it's a deck that puts itself directly in the middle lane, where it can go in either direction depending on what the flow of traffic is like. And that is a driving analogy brought to you by somebody who used to record a podcast while driving home in the car. See how far we've come. Um, so, you know, I used to think mid-range decks were just kind of piles of good magic cards that players wanted to defend by saying they're just really good magic cards and that's why I'm playing them. But the more I study them, the more I, I look into them, the more I really, really like them. So... If you ever get into a situation where you have a deck that you feel like is good, 
don't let somebody talk you out of it because it's just, quote, a mid-range pile. Because all the best mid-range decks of all time have started at some point as a mid-range pile. It's whether or not you are choosing the cards for the right reasons that determines whether or not it becomes a mid-range deck instead of a mid-range pile. Uh, and that's really all I've got. I mean, I know I know we normally do a little bit more in-depth on something like this, but, I mean, we're, we're talking about history here. And I love talking about it, but I also tend to go through it very quickly. Um, so, all that out of the way, if you are interested in another history topic and you want to tell me about it, or if you're interested in, you know, telling me to stick to other stuff, hit me up. Let me, let me know. On Twitter, I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain, like the country. Oh, Lord, I'm putting the wrong stuff in. Um... You can join the Facebook group. Uh, it's the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, you can... Well, that's sad. There's none anyway. Um, I was going to say, you can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It's open invite. Just send a request, and within reason, we will give you a shot. And then if it turns out, you know, you're a horrible person who's trying to use my group for nefarious things, you will be savagely and viciously booted from the group uh and normally each week we would uh request M hashtag mtg dad jokes but it looks like we didn't get any this week for the first time in a while but if you just come up with a great magic related pun and want to share feel free if you tweet it i will read it and i will almost certainly laugh at it so uh thanks for listening everybody i hope you enjoyed it and I upcoming content, depending on what my weekend looks like, it will tell me what uh, riding in cars with cards looks like this week. And obviously, depending on said weekend, it will give me insight into what next week's homework path looks like. So we're kind of playing it by ear at the moment. But if anybody has any suggestions, if anybody, you know, does something really cool, comes up with something really cool, and they want it spotlighted and uh, riding with cars, and there's a lesson I can use from it in a Homeward Path episode, feel free to send it to me. I'll take a look. We'll see what we can, see what we can do. Until next week, I just want to say thanks for listening, and safe travels. See you later. <laughs>